Backward Political D, our 15th edition. And up to this point, we've been broadly a virus-free zone, I think. Uh, but we want to start today, uh, before we go on to a number of other topics, uh, just looking at, at the uh, kind of uh, disparity between uh, the different messages that are emerging out of government at this point in time and the difficulty maybe with that going forward. And on the one hand, we've had the almost panic calls from the health departments, uh, which have uh, encouraged the idea, I think, that things are really still very awful. Uh, while at the same time, we've had an education minister who's been desperately trying to say, we're doing the best we can, and we believe that kids can go back to school safely. Uh, and those two messages seem to be rubbing up each other in terms of some of the broadcast uh, media and how uh, they're treating the topic. Would that be a fair assessment of where we are? I think so. I mean, I can understand why Robin Swan, as the health minister, is putting the public health aspect of it front and centre, but perhaps he's taking his eye a little bit off the fact that we are trying to get the economy restarted. We're hoping that schools will go back in a week or two, and we know that there are people that are sceptical about that because they've been hearing the kind of slightly panicked tone of the debate now for, what is it, the five months? So. The thing that I, I think troubled me a, a little bit about uh, about the messages over the last week was there seemed to be a, a lack of evidence and a lack of detail that we were drawing uh, on. I think Robin Swan said, had admitted quite freely that he didn't think there was a single cause or wasn't able to kind of pinpoint a single cause for the uptick in cases, although he, he's mentioned the uh, meat factories. We're left with kind of casting around to, to find something to do whether it's going to be effective or not, we don't know. So they've settled on downgrading how many people can meet indoors, downgrading well, how yeah, many I, people I mean, if you actually look at the, Yeah, if you actually look at the NISRA numbers, you can see that there's been a substantial increase in testing in recent weeks. So you would imagine that given that the tests aren't exactly 100%, that apparently uh, it, you, you will get a positive test even if you're past... Uh, has having had the virus, there's a remnant or whatever it is called uh, that persists. Th this is a difficulty because you're trying to convince people how bad things are when they're looking at the stats and saying, yeah, but you know, these would be the numbers anyway. We're going to have to live with this for a while. We need to manage our ways through. And the sense of panic coming from the Department of Health, what they ought to be saying is, we're living with this. It's going to come down the line. We need to find the ways that work. Uh, and if we do need to come back uh, and, and be a bit uh, more uh, stringent in certain areas, then we'll have, we'll have our good reason. But don't try and tell us one thing when your own figures are telling us something slightly different. Yeah, I mean, I've tried throughout this really to guard against complacency and not to, to say that there isn't anything to be worried about. But realistically, Though the number of cases have gone up, we're still talking about really tiny numbers in hospital, you know, one or two here and there, some hospitals, nobody at all. We're talking about even smaller numbers in ICU, tiny numbers of deaths, very, very in, infrequent deaths. So we don't want to see, um, to, to coin a phrase, is Robin becoming the, the swan who cried wolf? Yeah, I, 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 I don't... I don't want to suggest that it's not a, a, you know, a virus that has problems, or, you know, that, that, that it can create a, a significant health issue. But I think we're past now you know, 
protecting the NHS because the NHS coped pretty well uh, at the start of the year. And you know, in terms of numbers, you know, we should be able to see it, it. You know, if it got to the point where they were starting to see hospital admissions again, then yes, that would be a justification. But I think they need to start looking at other measures than this rather vague um, uh, one point. What, what, what's that thing called again? It's uh, the, the R number. The R number. Uh, the yeah. R number. The, the difficulty with the R number, the R number um, is is just simply a function of uh, if one person has the virus and on average how many people they, they pass it on yeah. to. And that's something that's quite meaningful if there are thousands of people out there with the virus. But if there's only hundreds or, or tens or whatever, it becomes less and less meaningful. I think we, you have to move and, and uh, you're following the science is one thing, but at the end of the day, there has to be political decisions made in terms of how do you actually manage going forward, not manage so much just the virus, but manage ourselves and, and, and allow us to live again, because I think that's becoming the difficulty. Uh, and there are those people who are just sort of going, you know, sod it all, I'm just going out and doing what, you know, uh, and that's even more dangerous. You need to let people feel responsible and feel that a sense of the government is in control. And this kind of panic suggests that they're not in control and that all these measures that have to be brought in is because they don't know how to control. And I think that's a really poor message. Well, that, that's right. We started off the, the crisis with the idea being that we were going to protect the NHS and flatten the curve and everything else. And we've never really moved past that message even though clearly that aim has been achieved and now we need honesty from our leaders are we planning to live with this disease if it's going to be around for months or years or are we planning to suppress it because from the sense that i get from from everything that i've read and and, and the people that i've listened to if we're planning planning to suppress it we're really on a uh, on a difficult uh, path because that's not going to be possible. We want people to be responsible. We want them to go about their, their everyday lives in a, in a way that um, minimizes the risk of this virus, but we need to get back to doing the, the things that comprise day -day our things. And I think we're, if we're talking about flattening curves, we can talk about flattening, flattening uh, grades uh, in terms of being a, a fair system. And again, we're back to education ministers across the UK. And you know, this isn't just a matter of Williamson, who obviously gets it in the neck because he's the biggest health, uh, biggest uh, education minister, but both in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and to a certain extent Wales as well, all education ministers have really quite failed in terms of dealing with uh, exam results this year. Yeah, and they must have seen this uh, coming down the line. They've known for a while that there wasn't going to be exams, that there was going to be um, that the, the grades were going to be altered from what the teachers had said and that there were going to be difficulties. Um, and they must as well have had uh, access to the figures. So why wasn't this issue tackled before the public furore? Because we know, we know every year, even with exams, we hear on the radio about someone not getting their expected grades and that they've done, you know, this is only because they're at a certain school or because, uh, you know, somebody took against them. There, there are complaints every year. The idea that our broadcast media wouldn't be filled or, or, or print media wouldn't be filled with examples of how bad it is for a number of individuals, that was always going to happen. 
in that case, you had to be prepared to be able to say, we knew that that would happen. And here are the mitigating uh, processes that we've put in place to, to resolve that because we knew it was going to happen. I, I just have a sense that in, in terms of the politics of this, they kind of left it again to the experts or to the, to the sort of arm's length agency so that if things did go wrong, they could simply say, well, it's not our fault, boys. But ultimately, it was a political decision to go with whatever uh, the, these uh, exam bodies were prepared to go with. We've kind of entered a spell where the political tactic is almost to devolve decision-making to experts and to claim that there's the science upon which you're drawing. And I mean, I, I think that, you know, if you were looking at it from the scientific point of view, from the point of view of a, science, uh, a scientist, they would say that there is no such thing as the science. The science is contested and certain um, aspects of it are, are less strongly contested than others or, or there's more of a consensus around them. Um, but the idea that something as subjective and contentious as exam results can be, can be dealt with perfectly through an algorithm or whatever else, it, it, it's, it's not sustainable. Um, well, particularly uh, when you uh, take out the, the certain element of an exam result, yeah, you know, then you're only left with the subjective, with the best will in the world, and, and uh, this isn't a criticism of teachers, but ultimately a mark is a subjective mark based on what they think, and those are going to vary between the teachers. So the algorithm in a normal year is brought in uh, to, to flatten out some of, some of uh, the marking, uh, because teachers, some teachers will mark more better than other teachers or mark higher than other teachers. So it's understandable these things exist. But like I said, they always throw up anomalies. They always throw up things that aren't, uh, that, that aren't fair. Uh, and then you have to have something in place to deal with that. And that ultimately is a political process of saying, okay. how do we mitigate the worst elements of having to use these, these systems? It is a political process and the other aspect of the way that the government has, uh, has dealt with it is that their messaging and um, the way that they've allowed something, uh, an issue to, to come to go out of control and become a crisis has been an absolute disaster and they've done it again and again. I mean, th th this, uh, I happen to think that Gavin Williamson's a particularly disastrous example of it because he can't seem to utter a clear sentence that's understandable to the man on the street. He just blethers nonsense. Very good word. Um, that, 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 that's indecipherable. Um, and I don't understand why on earth he's in a cabinet position in the first place. But I mean, that, that obviously, we're talking about uh, objectivity, and that is not objective. <laughs> you know, we, we're, we're talking there in terms of, of, of following the experts. Uh, but but the experts ultimately in in a in a democracy experts can advise but politicians have to take decisions at the end of the day, um, and as you say it's this sense of almost outsourcing thinking to third parties and then saying but they're experts you know we've only been following what they've done they got it wrong it's nothing to do with us. Well, those people come from the sort of centre right point of view, David, and and uh, the perception has always been that you know, Labour Party and some of the 
the most compelling messages to people, but the conservatives were competent and uh, yeah, sort well, of right. and and kept a, a steady hand in the tiller. And that reputation at the moment is going out the window in instance after instance. And they've got to get a a grasp on this before it becomes so embedded uh, with the public that there's no way back for this government. Exactly. I think we'll we'll maybe uh, shift slightly away from how uh, miserably bad our uh, government departments, wherever we are in the UK, um, whether national or regional or anything else, are just not performing as they perhaps should. Let, let's let's move on slightly to uh, an article you wrote in the past week in the newsletter, probably triggered by a lot of talk around the centenary, but also some uh, other talk and discussion around um, unionism and uh, you know, Boris turning up and being the Minister for the Union. Um, and what does that mean? I think you wrote a very good piece uh, and brought forward three, three strong ideas that I guess are yardsticks that people should be looking at in terms of measuring the performance. Well, thank you, David. The, the idea of the article really, uh, I suppose, uh, as a unionist, uh, and, and particularly over the last few years, there's been a sense that we've always been firefighting, kind of dealing with crisis, one crisis to the other, and 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 the, there's this kind of sense of demoralisation that that's set in with unionists. And my idea was that this, you know, needn't be the case, and that we needed to get back to this set of of guiding principles. And 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 I suggested three. Um, the first one of which was to strengthen the United Kingdom uh, and to maintain and consolidate Northern Ireland's place in it, essentially, and, and paraphrasing. Um, the second was to ensure that Northern Ireland played as full a role in as possible in the social, political and economic life of our nation, which we see as Britain, obviously, or as, as the United Kingdom. And the third was to make Northern Ireland a happy and prosperous home for people of all backgrounds. As related to that, to encourage positive relationships with our neighbours across this island, uh, where we can. And my idea is that if we keep testing what you're doing as a unionist party or as unionists against those three core principles, then strategically you gain a better insight into where you're going or what you're doing and why you're doing it. Well, I, I think that's that. Yeah, you know, so I was, I was quite struck. I think, I think from a you know, communications background, I might have uh, taken a, a slightly different approach, but I don't think the actual points would have been any different at all. Uh, I think the positive relationships with our neighbours across the island of Ireland, I would say, yeah, that's true, but you know, we shouldn't then simply accept that as an agenda, particularly in things like the all-Ireland economy, which we've seen through Brexit, is fairly marginal in terms of the, the future health of Northern Ireland. Um, and we should, you know, our unionist politicians, if you, I look at number three, should have been stressing much more uh, strongly the value of the trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. But more particularly, I think, and it's always been a bugbear of mine, instead of the all-Ireland economy, we should be talking about the all-islands economy, because largely speaking, Great Britain and Ireland is is a pretty close economic unit. Yeah, when we've talked about this before. The All Ireland economy is essentially a bit of a misnomer. Yes, we're, it's it, the trade that we do with the Republic of Ireland is important, but it's dwarfed by the, um, the the trade that we do with with Great Britain. But you're right, the, that East West dynamic was always 
the most important aspect of the, the economic relationships for both parts of Ireland, if you want to frame it uh, like that, because we're, we're both quite dependent on our, on our links, our economic links with, with Great Britain. And I suppose we, we both thought at, at one stage that the Republic of Ireland's um, approach in, in Brexit negotiations was to try and mitigate any barriers that might happen in that regard. And so far, they've, in, unless something uh, comes up in the sort of the final months of, of trade negotiations, they've failed to, to protect that link. Yes, I, I just think you're again going into the centenary when, when we're talking about um, playing a full role in the social, political and economic life of the British nation. It's not simply pointing to how well we've done in the past, but actually looking for ways that that can actually be represented in real terms. I mean, I make the point in the article that we all feel um, a bit let down by the way that Boris Johnson has implemented the Northern Ireland Protocol, and we're all worried about that. But I don't think that the centenary is the time for recriminations. We still have to turn those relationships around as, around as best we can. And the way to do that is to win friends and influence people across the United Kingdom and, and kind of emphasise what an important part of it we are and how we want to play as full a role uh, as we possibly can going forward. Yeah, uh, rather, than, engaged, yeah. rather than always, you know, projecting a, a sense. And I, I fully admit that I that I do this at times as well because uh, the, the, there's been so many issues over the, the past few years, but we need to kind of project the sense of positivity if people are going to believe that we have a, a positive um, message to, to sell. I thought it was, it was welcome as a thoughtful article that actually puts something positive forward rather than the, uh, just the, the constant criticism of things not being right and things not being done. Uh, and I think you, you, you have to start with what are the positives uh, and then you create some measures for ourselves perhaps to judge the political parties in terms of what they're doing and whether they're living up to that fairly, fairly simple but, but, but positive unionist sense of, sense of purpose. Uh, I think that was a, it was a good exercise and a very welcome article as well. But, but underneath that, and I, I, I will just finish off looking at a, a, a new publishing um, website, which was dissentingvoices.uk. Uh, and I think one of one of the, the the crossover point here is that there is a sense uh, in, in terms of unionism centrally, in terms of the the government at, at Westminster, that they really do lack a a sense of of their own reason reason uh, to exist as a as a state. Um, uh, you know, the the French have no problem with understanding the purpose of the I think it's the Fifth Republic they're on. Um, you know, Macron, when all the BLM protests came out, Macron just came out and said, we're not taking down statues. You know, there was no equivocation. There was no, um, uh, oh, we need to re-examine things. We need to look at things we need to do. He just said, no, nope, not, not going to happen. And he had the, the authority of the state, if you like, because the French have a very particular uh, sense of France, you know, there is a, a, a raison d'etat, there, there's a reason of, of, of state uh, in France that I think sometimes I struggle to hear uh, in the public discourse, um, particularly public discourse around Westminster or Whitehall or, or, or the government, uh, the state. There's, 
kind of a, I, I suppose that you could call it a cultural cringe that's built up over a number of decades or, or even longer than that, where a sort of liberal tendency within British society is always beating itself up for things that it perceives it's done in the past. And patriotism has seen, has come to be seen as a bit, um, bit dodgy, a bit, you know, something that uh, extremists cleave to. And I mean, at, at the edges, there's no denying there, there's that element, but we've got to be proud of what we have and what we've contributed to uh, well, basically Western civilization, because I mean, if you, if you look at um, the kind of uh, development of liberal democracies and the role that Britain has played in that, it, it's very substantial. So yes, I mean, I, I was struck by, you, you mentioned dissenting voices and the, the paper um, that uh, I think you, you created with, uh, with Arthur Aukey, yeah. the, the, the very um, uh, substantial historian from, uh, from Northern Ireland. And, and the, I, I thought it was an excellent paper in this idea of, of transitional justice being used to establish a kind of a black taxi tour of the troubles that has become the accepted account of the past. That is what, you know, throughout society, we've got to be uh, questioning that and trying to put a more nuanced approach in place. And the British government has got to play a role in that, as you well, said. I think the reason why a number came together to write that paper, it was triggered by the policy exchange, um, basically setting up a project on, on why history matters uh, and uh, putting together a panel of fairly prominent individuals, including uh, Trevor Phillips and, and uh, uh, Lord Bew, uh, simply to look at history. And then they, they kind of published a whole lot of things on, uh, on the threats to, to history, as it were, or the re reimagining history by political forces. Uh, and, and kind of left, I thought they, they didn't really start with a, an analysis of what is history and, and what, the, what is the value of history. I think that's where we started from in that paper, uh, looking at uh, why, why history is complex, uh, why uh, it's important that history is based on evidence. Uh, now that evidence may change as you learn new, new things. Um, you know, archaeologists are finding out new things all the time, help paleontologists are finding out new things. New dinosaurs appear regularly in our papers, I think. Uh, so, you know, history cha does change and it, it alters, but it's always based on evidence. It's always based on facts. Now, you can draw, draw lessons and, and uh, you can make uh, assertions based on those facts, but it still has to be evidence and other people are able to come in and challenge those facts. And I think the, the, the reason legacy was used, quite apart from the fact that people writing paper from Northern Ireland, um, was that you know, here is an example where you've almost, there is, it has become a single truth that has created a, a political interpretation of things that doesn't allow for anything else to, to impress. Um, and we thought it was a good example. And the British government have been very, very weak in challenging that, that uh, as you say, that black taxi tour idea of, of the troubles. Um, I mean, it really has been miserable. One, one of the important uh, points that I took from the document was we shouldn't really be talking about rewriting history. We keep using this term and that's yeah. not the correct term to, to use because history will be rewritten as, as new evidence and, and new interpretations come to light. We're talking about, um, 
interpretations of history that distort the facts and don't draw upon the facts and flatten out the facts. And there seems to be a greater tendency for that at the moment. You mentioned legacy. It, 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 it's not just legacy. It's something like the, the, the idea that um, Catholics didn't have the vote in Northern Ireland. And we know that that's nonsense. There was a uh, the, 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 the council um, franchise was not reformed at the same time as it was reformed in the rest of the United Kingdom and, and that should have been done and it didn't happen. But Catholics voted uh, in all elections in Northern Ireland. In fact, the majority of Catholics voted in council elections too. But for some reason, people are now allowed to assert that Catholics didn't have the vote in Northern Ireland. Absolute nonsense. Well, I think the, the other part of the, the whole uh, legacy process is to almost say that they, the IRA uh, had a legitimacy. You know, that, that, that Sinn Féin's modern legitimacy is based on the IRA's legitimacy in, in, in a justified war. You hear it at every eulogy for every dead thug um, uh, that is, is undertaken by, by, uh, by the like of Sinn Féin. Um, but of course, there was no legitimacy. You know, the, the democratic voices across the spectrum, you know, unionist, nationalist, uh, all the, you know, the British government, the Irish government, the churches, civil society, international, all condemned the use of violence by Republican and loyalist terrorists. Uh, and yet that is actually almost become discounted that somehow today it's become, uh, oh, it was all okay. When the history tells you that it was not regarded as legitimate by any aspect of society outside that small, small cabal. And the terrifying thing is that we've forgotten that truth in such a relatively short period of time. And it's yeah. partly due to the fact um, there's understandably a kind of a, a middle ground of people who don't want to talk about history at all. Yeah. But there's a very politicized, motivated section of nationalism that won't let it lie. So if we don't have these discussions, if we don't um, talk about the nuances of, of these debates, then that flattened out uh, caricature of history is what will come to be recognized as the received version, as the almost official yeah. narrative. Well, we're not sure if, we're not sure if, if the British government is, is starting to push back on that narrative. Whatever the reason why it wants to start to push back, it's a very welcome pushback by the British government at the yeah. present time. Um, and and the other, another point that I would make related to that, David, is that as we move towards the centenary year, yeah. there's an opportunity to look at that again, because in a centenary, we're looking back at 100 years. Nobody can accuse us of being, you know, rooted in the past. Uh, but, but if we look back in our, on, on our history at, at a mile point at a milestone like that so it's an opportunity to do it in such a way that puts many of these kind of falsehoods right or adds um adds nuance to to the kind of flattened out economy yeah uh, i understand there's a history panel so we'll have to wait and see what uh, what the output of that is as well um i think it's a good good place uh, probably to stop um obviously your article is still up on the newsletter website uh, it's worth taking a look. Just go in uh, and add a new one about the centenary as well. And the new one about the centenary, which I think I think the two of them actually go together very very nicely. By the way, I, th I think they they say quite well. Good. Uh, and then also, uh, anybody wants to have a look at that paper, 
just go to dissentingvoices.uk. It's a publishing site. Don't go back regularly. Um, we'll be, I'm sure, whenever anything comes out, uh, it'll get talked about on Twitter or be sent around uh, with the people we know and then hopefully get spread out into a broader area. But it's only going to be occasionally publishing a paper. It's not a regular, it's not a blog. That was a very important thing that uh, we decided at the outset. It's not a blog. Okay, uh, good speaking to you again, Owen, and uh, we'll speak us again soon. Good speaking to you, David. Take care.